0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought about their themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Spocky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which
0: we would, of course, dump.
1: They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door and run down to sell one, and get a bugler can full of Spocky and take it back to his cells.
0: She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them but she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say kitty 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 and those cats would go to her welcome ladies and gentlemen to another episode of stool pigeon saturday today i have a special guest named randy martinez who turned me on to charles phelps story a little earlier this year Randy has worked as a detention officer, U.S. Navy and Navy Reserve Captain, and a Deputy United States Marshal and Investigator, among other positions throughout his life. He is an excellent researcher who has written numerous biographies on United States Marshals that came before him, and today he's going to share a firsthand account of this unique federal law enforcement agency. So welcome to the show, Randy. Well, thank you. Yeah. Now, can you... Just give us a, a little spotlight on your life and what led you to become a United States Marshal.
1: Well, basically, and I tell people this, is that I was looking for a job when I got that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I just got out. Of, I went to college and then went in the Navy and had um, got out and returned to Great Falls with my family and got a job with the sheriff's office working as a detention officer jailer. During that time, they offered the U.S. Marshal's exam, which didn't happen very often, so I took my opportunity to take the test. I apparently did well enough to get a job interview and then and then a job as a, as a Deputy United States Marshal. So it wasn't like a life
0: goal to go that route? You just kind of fell into it and just happened to be a natural at it?
1: I, I just fell into it. Uh, <laughs> Originally, I went to college and I've, I've got an education degree oh. and specialized in health and physical education with a specialty in athletic training. So it's half my degree is in education and half my degree is in physical therapy credits.
0: What year did you
1: become a marshal? In 1986, okay. March 31st, 1986.
0: Did you have family at that time that you know that were they supportive of you going into the service?
1: My wife and my two sons, okay. and. Well, my other family, my mother, my dad, everybody was supportive of me going into the Marshall Service. It was a considerable step up as far as uh, going from a, from a local agency up to a federal agency. And uh, no, everybody was, been really, was really happy about me get, getting that job. And it was a good paying job, too. That's good to know.
0: Yeah. What was it like working in the detention center?
1: Well, when I was working at Cascade County, I was one of six detention officers And we had around 100 prisoners on a daily basis. Hmm. So we had one guy on a shift, and basically I spent my my 8, 10 hours a day running (laughs) from place to place to place inside the facility, putting out fires and taking care of people and learning how to deal with people that don't always tell you the truth, what's going on, and sorting that things out. And I think that actually helped me in the long run, I got to learn about people's, you know, you see the same people, you get to learn and meet their families. And I think later on in my career, it actually helped me because I knew a lot of the same people from before. So then at night, back then there was no 911. So I was also, besides being the jailer detention officer, I was also the county's night dispatcher too, radio dispatcher. So it was a full job. Sounds like it. Yeah, Yeah. kind of on-the-job training, and
0: you you do feel like it prepared you though for the Marshal Service and and your other. I think,
1: I think it did. I think it did because in my case, I was in a two-man office in Helena, and then when I moved to Missoula, I was in a one-man office. So basically, I was the show, and and my boss basically just left it to me to be responsible. And take care of business the way I was, the way it's supposed to be done, and uh, I think I was successful yeah. doing those things because of that training.
0: Can you talk some about some of your experiences as a marshal? Like, what was a typical day, and what were some of the events that you feel really defined your career?
1: Well, a typical day, is, I guess I, I could say there's really no typical day. <laughs> the more mundane things were. One of the things the marshal does is bring the prisoners to court for the judge for their hearings and transporting prisoners back and forth to court from a jail to the federal courthouse for a hearing for a courtroom isn't, isn't what I call the more interesting part of the job, but it's an, it's a necessary part of the job. That's one of the missions of the Marshall services is to support the judiciary. And we do that for providing those services to the judge and the security for the judge too. Mm-hmm transporting prisoners that's another mundane thing <laughs> but it has to be done there's a few exciting things going on. early on out of helena we get transported all our prisoners to on their way to prison to federal prison all the way to salt lake city so we be traveling from helena down interstate 15 to blackfoot idaho house them overnight there and then the next morning then we take them down to salt lake city to meet the U.S. marshals uh, prison jet with, and then load them on an airplane from there. So it was it was a long you know we spent 3 days 3 days just driving back and forth between Montana and Utah. That's kind of mundane. As far as highlights go, it's actually been and I and tying this back into Idaho too is you know one of the things that I I don't forget I, I, you know, it's, hard, it's hard to forget is uh, 1992 was was the incident of Ruby Ridge. Mm-hmm. Randy Weaver I was doing a mundane job at the time I was I was driving back from Spokane with a prisoner on highway 200 because I had to go through Thompson Falls for another thing I was uh, I was working on and came across a wreck before we hit the Idaho border and I couldn't get a hold of anybody and like all I could hear on the radio was just all heck breaking out and and I found out as I was trying to take care of this, this car wreck with this lady that was injured, that something bad had going on and, all, and there was no police officers or Idaho state troopers available to help me with the wreck. By the time I got back into Montana, I was getting frantic calls on the radio and got a hold of my boss. And he told me to get back to Missoula, load up the truck with all your gear and you're going to be spending the next whatever up on Ruby Ridge. So wow! So I drove the Spokane, came back, loaded it up, then I went out to the airport, picked up a load of Special Operations marshals at the airport, and drove them all up to uh, up to Bonner's Ferry.
0: Did you happen to know that Marshal Deegan that that was shot and killed like as it started? Or
1: no, I didn't know Bill Deegan. Oh, okay, but I did know. A lot of the other guys that were up on that on that hillside that was actually they had been working on that for a long time Mm -hmm. and that would what had happened was they were in a transition of switching shifts because they did they did like like a month on and a month off Mm -hmm. when that incident happened so by the time i got up there it was nighttime and it was kind of it was kind of unnerving to go up there because there was a people gathering at Ruby Ridge on the road up to the cabin and uh, it kind of had a riot on our hands yeah in in the middle of the woods man
0: and were you there for the entire 11 day siege pretty
1: much yes yes I was so that was the that was the day of the shooting It was when I had the wreck and then I drove back and I was back there that night and then I was working night shift guarding these positions and we had people infiltrating across the creek and Trying to get up to the mountain and bringing guns and things like that. Oh wow! And we had white supremacists with not actual real Nazi flags in the oh, crowds. Jeez. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was kind of surreal. The That's whole funny. thing was really surreal. yeah, very high tension moment.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs>
1: yeah. So yeah, you know, I also I didn't get in on the arrest, but uh, with the Unabomber with Ted Kaczynski, I actually moved Ted Kaczynski. Couple times back and forth to court. I actually talked to him because he was my prisoner Uh in Helena.
0: What was that like? What what did what did you guys talk about?
1: Well, he was very quiet, just a very quiet individual. At least when when I had him. And the first time I met him, he was sitting in a cell and he was reading physics books in Spanish and in Russian. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Okay. But he was yes sir no sir, and he was very polite, and Mm -hmm. that was basically my interaction with him.
0: (laughs) I had no idea, Randy. That's that's crazy. I knew you had been involved in Ruby Ridge, but wow, I didn't realize you had met Ted Kaczynski.
1: Near the end of my last ten years of my career, I was uh, I was lucky enough to be assigned in two different areas, program areas, special program areas. I was uh, a sexual offender investigator. So I was doing, I was actually going after warrants on on sexual offenders and working with the state of Montana doing sexual offenders, Mm -hmm. which led led me into also working and looking for abducted children. That that was a good thing. And then the other the other program, which I really enjoyed, was in 2003 they the Marshal Service started a program called the Canadian Investigative Liaison Officer program Mm -hmm. and got training for that and then they turned me loose and said do what you got to do make your contacts and so i was responsible to make contacts up in eastern british columbia alberta saskatchewan and manitoba (sighs) and then travel up there and then get cases i did have either foreign fugitives coming down from canada from other countries or international fugitives they were leaving the United States and going into Canada. So we were going back and forth across the border. And I did get to do a lot of travel uh, up into Canada for that. And still have, have a lot of friends up there. So, so.
0: Yeah, so you had quite the, uh, the grounds that you covered here, <laughs> like the Northwest and across the border into Canada. Was that right. difficult? Or did, did you feel like you had a good network of support that you could get things done?
1: I think I did. I think I'd had to, well, I had to develop my network of support. I found out who I could depend on, who I could count on. And even on the fly, I would make cold calls, and I would get anywhere in Canada or in the United States, I'd get as much help as I needed. Huh. I uh, tracked one foreign fugitive from, uh, from France who was living in North Carolina, where I'm presently living at. He made his way all the way up to Montana where he had a girlfriend. <laughs> And he hiked across the U.S.-Canadian border into into Alberta, caught a bus across Canada, and I caught him in, in Ontario in a bus. But I just me Cole calling uh, the Thunder Bay uh, Ontario police. I got a whole SWAT team out, and they they pulled him off the bus, and no one got hurt. So that was the good part about that. So that that's an example, a couple examples of of the kind of stuff we did. Yeah. Um, my first case was a Tennessee case with. With the uh, uh, Up in Calgary, they had a serial trial rapist that left Tennessee, was on the Tennessee Top Ten Most Wanted, and we located him up in Calgary. I sent uh, a friend of mine out there to look for him. He found the address, and they banged on the door. The guy opened the door, and there was a, a child he had just abducted oh. inside the house, and they arrested him on the spot. Wow. Wow. And before he could, had a chance to molest the child. And uh, and then we got him back to Tennessee. So he's, he's still sitting in prison, I think. That's
0: amazing. That, did you ever have to use force in, in any of your career? Or? I've,
1: I've, I've had to fight people, which I don't really enjoy that much anyway. But a good example is uh, I was looking for a, a serial rapist in, in Montana, in western Montana, off of a state warrant. And I, a, a friend, a probation officer and I were up at Lolo Pass and we're handing out flyers because we knew he might be in the area. Walked into a bar and I saw somebody walk out the back door and we followed him to the back door and it was our man.
0: Oh. Huh.
1: He got, he ran to his car, me chasing him. Then we ended up having a, having a brawl outside of his car. He got into his car, started the car. And he drugged me about fifty feet <laughs> on the pavement, so I, I had a good road rash that night. So that's an example. I've had a few other instances in courtrooms where prisoners got a little unruly, but that's probably one of the worst ones I've had. Yeah, being drugged by a car. Oh
0: yeah, I can only <laughs> which imagine. I don't,
1: which I don't, which I don't recommend for anybody to do. <laughs> don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Don't don't do that. But we got him. So. That's the good part. Yeah.
0: So this last episode, we covered Charles Phelps, who worked in southern Idaho in the 1880s, and it led to a series of murders that he committed. And can you kind of compare how his job would compare to yours 100 years later? Like, how has the Marshal Service
1: evolved over uh, over that 100-year span? Well, the Marshal Service actually We're doing the same basic job that they did back in 1789 when when the Marshall Service was formed. It wasn't the Marshal Service, it was just the Office of the United States Mm Marshal. We're still serving process, we're still arresting people. The good thing is, instead of horses, we're we're using SUVs and cars and jet aircraft to get get prisoners around. Mm -hmm. We're still using uh, the same legal system seizing vehicles, seizing houses for criminal activity, boats on the high seas. I even seized a boat uh, in a lake in Montana under under the U.S. Admiralty laws, <laughs> which goes back to old English common law, and, and the terms we use are still the same. The uh, way we do things are pretty much the same, except for it's more regulated. There's more regulations. It's stricter. It's not kind of... It's not kind of a free-form, you-make-it-up-as-you-go kind of thing. There's actually rules and regulations we got to follow, mm-hmm. and legal and le- legal things, mm-hmm. so, legal cases that we have to follow. we got to follow law, because we are enforcing the law. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty much the same. Back then, I know like the, during the time of, of the uh, 1880s, they used to get paid on a fee system, and... If you went out and served a piece of paper, you got so much money for serving a subpoena. Or if you seized a piece of property, you get a part of the proceeds of the sale of that property. That was your that was your take. So mm. it was it was to your benefit financially to do those things. Yeah. A lot of times, if you arrested somebody, you got nothing.
0: <sighs> yeah, I found a, several of those auctions that Charles was leading in town for these kind of criminal auctions, basically stolen goods. And I was curious where that money went, if if he collected that or if it went to the judge or how that works.
1: It, it, well, part of the proceeds he kept and then the rest of it had to go to the marshal. Okay. Because the marshal is the presidentially appointed person and the deputy marshal is appointed by the marshal. Oh, okay. The marshals themselves, the, the presidential appointed part, part marshals, back then were also responsible for the finances of the court. So they paid the wages of the, the judges and also for the clerk of courts and all the other staff members of the courts, of the court family, including the U.S. Attorney's Office. So the marshal was responsible for those things, and he was even bonded over. They had to basically pay a performance bond to the government before they... Uh, They could be pointed marshal back then, just in case something went uh, sideways. Gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the
0: process uh, for a marshal to, I guess, gather a case and and enforce the law? Are they handed something from a marshal? Like a deputy marshal is handed a document from a
1: marshal who receives it from a judge? Well, usually what happens is somebody performs a criminal act. Mm -hmm. Whether it be an escaping out of a jail, do a probation violation, parole violation, or any number of violations. Impersonation of a United States Marshal, that's a crime. And then I go out as a criminal investigator, and I can actually go out and investigate that crime, interview people, and gather my probable cause to see if there actually was behavior that rises to criminal behavior. Okay. That's how I develop my probable cause. To see if there can be a charge brought against that person. So that's one way. That's a criminal investigation. I've had to escape. So okay, uh, the person was in jail. He was legally in jail. He broke out of jail, and then where he went, for, he and then he was cited in a place where he wasn't supposed to be. He was out of cust- uh, out of legal custody, and then I can I can charge somebody with escape. So there's a lot of different. There's a lot of dis- different aspects to yeah. this job. Serving process and court orders is a different thing where I, I've received an order from the court and I have to execute in a, legal, in a legal manner, whether it be serving a process, seizing some assets, arresting somebody as an order from the court, an arrest warrant, because like, somebody failed to appear at court. That's, mm-hmm. they, that's an example of Rand, what, what happened to Randy Weaver. Yeah. There was charges against him originally. He was let out on bond and then he failed to appear for court. That's an example of that. So then it went from the ATF, where it was originally a gun charge, and then he made it to court, and then he failed to show up at court, and then the marshals were charged of bringing him back in because he's under the jurisdiction of the court. And we're the and the marshals are the enforcement arm of the court because they the court can't physically go out and do it.
0: So in, in Phelps' time, he was arresting people for unlawful cohabitation. He's kind of right. helping enforce that. Uh, how, how did that fit in kind of with that
1: purview? Back then, the marshals were the law. The Mar- U.S. marshals were one of the few federal agencies that actually had powers of arrest. There was no FBI back then. The Secret Service had just formed uh, in 1865, and their specialty Besides protecting the president, was going after treasury counterfeiting, mm-hmm. treasury crimes, and counterfeiting of money. That was their specialty. Before the Secret Service was there, it was the Marshal's job to go after people that were counterfeiting money. Huh. So they'd go out and, and, and do their thing. We're the enforcement arm. We're the enforcement of the courts, and we're also the enforcement arm for the president, too, mm-hmm. through the Attorney General. We're the enforcement, we're enforcement branch. And and the Marshal Service still is the enforcement branch. It's not primarily an investigation, but we do have powers of investigation. In fact, we're the only agency that in our credential system we're authorized to enforce all laws of the United States of America, not just certain sections like the DEA can only do drugs, narcotic crimes. ATF does alcohol, tobacco, and firearms crimes and related things to that. So we, we do a little bit of everything.
0: Yeah, do you feel like the marshals have kind of the most authority, I guess, in enforcing laws over other, you know, the FBI or other departments?
1: We have a lot of authority, but it's it's used very judiciously. Mm. We have the ability, legal authority to do it, but there's other agencies that specialize in different types of crimes.
0: Is there a lot of collaboration, like for instance, Ruby Ridge, where it was the DEA and FBI and USMS, you were all collaborated during that was that a pretty common experience yeah. for you oh.
1: yes yes especially in a smaller in small rural states like Montana and Idaho mm-hmm. we do work together we all got oh. along I think where you see a lot of headbutting is at, at more or like suddenly uh, on the higher levels but everybody seemed to get along just fine yeah. we, we, I mean there were so few of us to do things anytime I went on to where weren't when I was by myself, I had to get at least another person to go with me. So I was always working with a sheriff's office or another federal agency. A friend of mine had the office next door to me. He was a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agent, special agent. Oh. And him and I would go out and and go look for people
0: huh.
1: if he was available. So. You never know where you can get your help at. My my philosophy is make a friend wherever you go, you never know when you're gonna need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. For a a one to two man team for a whole, you know, state or a whole area that
1: I can only imagine. That has to you has to I be mean, your motto. You, I mean you see you see on the news where they're always having a big SWAT team and they got twenty five oh. people there and stuff like that. I was lucky if I could scare up one person, one or two other people to help (laughs) me.
0: (laughs) That is so crazy. Did you ever have any close calls that you're like, I am lucky to be alive after this?
1: One time in Helena, there was actually, it was kind of a sad story. This guy walked into a uh, Carroll College, which is a private Catholic college in in Helena. Mm -hmm. This guy walked in with a gun and he shot and killed a a lady that was uh, working in in the cafeteria. I mean, all heck broke loose. And all the cops from the area in Helen kind of converged on the college campus. And by the time we got there, he was up in a tree and he was with a rifle and he was taking pot shots at everybody. Oh. <laughs> Jeez. So, all I remember is I got real small behind a, uh, a fire hydrant. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had a few other instances. Like uh, I remember one time I was in Butte, Montana, and I was looking for. I had a warrant for a guy, me and my partner. I found this guy. He was inside of a camper behind a house, a, a truck camper. And I opened up the door, and as, as I opened the door up, and I saw his face, he was reaching up, and he pulled a gun out. He was getting ready to shoot me. So I got him first. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. And I remember reaching up and, and, and uh, grabbing him by the neck and telling him not to do that. So just little things like that I just you know there's there was other tense things that, that we did but you know it is what it is I just
0: <laughs> just little things I I like how nonchalant that is to you but to the rest of us to the listeners out here who aren't in law enforcement wow I what did you do did you have any you know hobbies did we go home and play guitar or go golfing or anything like that outside of work
1: my boys and I we always liked hiking in the woods and which is nice about living in Western Montana anywhere from our house, 10 minute drive, you're in national wilderness. Yeah. yeah. And rafting around Missoula. There was a lot, there's a lot of whitewater rafting. You're not that far from salmon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of people go down there, go fishing, uh, a lot of outdoor stuff, you know, things like that. I think positive things for kids to do. I really I enjoy my kids. I enjoy my grandkids. Now that's the kind of I always, I'm always trying to find things for to do with the kids.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did it ever cause strain, like in your relationships, just the stress of your job, or or do you feel like you were good at compartmentalizing and like leaving your work at work and having your home family life separate?
1: I think I'm pretty good about that. My wife worked in she worked in medical, so she worked at hospitals and worked for doctors, and and she worked night shifts and rotating shifts and then she even got a job for a while she was for a couple of years she was working as a 911 dispatcher so she knew what was going on and her her brother was also a deputy sheriff too and i, I think you, you you can't just hold that in and just at some point there's a certain level where it's even though you might like it it's still a job right yeah <laughs> and you and you got to think what's more important my job or my family and it's uh even though my job is important I still got to take care of my family, and you can't you can't bring home a lot of that stuff. Yeah. You really can't. Some of the awful stuff you've seen, that just, especially in the sex offender stuff. Oh. Yeah, you just can't you can't bring that home. Mm-hmm. And it, you have to have a way to just to blow it off and just let it go.
0: Right. Well, I appreciate your service and everybody in in law enforcement to see that you still have so much joy, like just speaking to you, and you love researching and you love. Uncovering these stories of previous marshals, like that, is just a testament to you as a person and, and to your career. That's really amazing.
1: I I think you got to have more interests. I really do. I mm-hmm. mean, you just can't just be one track person. I'm always doing something different. I was I'm editing a book for my my former uh, work partner, and uh, it has nothing to do with with any of this. Yeah. And what's what's this uh, book you're working on? Is it something that we we'll see? Who knows? Who th- <laughs> he suppose he's, he's got a deal worked out. It's a, it's a, it's a book on group survival. Oh. He's an interesting person too. Besides being a deputy U.S. marshal, currently he's a private investigator. But before that, he was on a, on a halo team for special Army special forces, which is high opening, low, low altitude opening of parachutes. So he's on an Army parachute special forces team. So he's taking all his knowledge from the marshals, and from the Army special forces. And combining it into a book on this is how do you how to survive out in the wilderness. Everything goes to heck. Yeah. This is how you do that. Even to the point of okay, we gotta treat people right and you gotta be fair and how to, this is how to set up a government. basic, basic based off of the off the United States Constitution. You know, you've got to be fair, fair to people and things like he's he thinks about those kind of things. It's a good book, so yeah, I
0: feel like that'll be popular here in Idaho for sure and
1: probably Montana or even even North Carolina. <laughs> oh yeah. No, but he even talks about how to how to navigate by the stars, how to navigate by the sun outside, how mm-hmm. to how to make how to preserve food, how to how to get clean water, shelter, Lawrence It's just the basics and he builds it on up there to an organizational structure and how to how to make a small community let's say there's no more police mm-hmm. let's say there's no more courts so there most, you know this is what you do how, how to treat people fairly things like that rebuild civilization kind of ba- basically yeah. that's what it is So I said it's a survival guard for for dystopian times yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. to get back to, to Charles Phelps in the marshall service eighteen eighties uh, how how did you come across this story? what's your interpretation of his life and crimes and do you think that Maybe the stresses of his job or maybe a lack of training maybe could have led to his criminality? Or, what's, what's your interpretation on all
1: that? Well, as far as I can tell, Charles Phelps, from his own words, was born about 1857 in Ohio. And like a lot of young men and back then, they came out west. And one of his occupations he's listed was, was blacksmiths. So I'm sure he was working as a blacksmith. Mm -hmm. made his way to Idaho was working as a blacksmith and back then if you knew somebody or somebody liked you and needed a deputy marshal the marshal liked you or they they got to know you you got yourself a job (laughs) and usually those jobs back then they weren't careers they were appointed only for the time that that marshal was in power when that marshal left you know, succeeded by another marshal, they were all replaced. So it was back then it was more of a temporary job. Mm-hmm. And I think he came out there, he was a blacksmith, he was a cowboy, he just did a little bit of everything and, and made it out. And he was a product of his time. and you, know, you got you had tough guys out there doing hard work and hard labor and a marshal was another Another one of those jobs. It it took tough guys back then to do those jobs. Mm -hmm. As far as the enforcing laws, the laws laws were what they were back then. Charles Phelps was a deputy marshal. What was going on at that time out in southern Idaho and Utah and Montana? The big factor of southern Idaho and and Utah, which I wasn't that familiar with until I started digging into this, (laughs) was, was the fact that There was the anti-polygamy laws. Mm -hmm. You know, on a couple couple levels, is one the religious mores at that time and what was going on, and still to this day, there's some stuff, uh, some of that going on. It's it's in 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 isolated sex. And they were, but they were enforcing it because one of the other things that factors into that was a lot of the Mormon polygamists were also taking the sides of the Democrats who were also Confederates back East. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans were po- in political power at that time. So it's kind of like a little bit of both that are enforcing it, but it was because who wanted to be in political uh, power? If the Mormons were backing the back some of the Democrats, then Republicans took offense and used those anti-polygamy laws to, uh, to punish them mm-hmm. politically. As far as how I found out about Charlie Phelps, I was actually writing a biography on William uh, F. Furry, who was the appointed U.S. Marshal in Montana. And back in 1891, he got a lead and a flyer about Charlie Phelps killing a uh, man named Heber West out in, in, at the 555 Saloon in Pocatello. That's when he got that, and he tracked him down, which is actually a good story. So that's, that's how I researched in the biography of Furry, and I go, who's this guy, Charlie Phelps, and what's going on? <laughs> that's yeah. a, I just kind of fell into it. That's, I found some more stuff on the Internet. Then there's also the program for the newspapers, Chronicling of America. That's, that's, it's a website uh, run by the Library of Congress that has old newspapers that you can access. I started reading.
0: Yeah, I went through the story this this last week, and I could not find an end to it. I don't know what happened to him.
1: And and, and I've been digging more ever, you know. And since we've been collaborating back and forth a little bit as far as digging up information, I haven't either. Uh. <laughs> this is out of the uh, Salt Lake Herald Republican of uh, April twenty seventh, nineteen ten. He says. Possessed of his old-time desperadoism, Phelps headed a gang of thieves and highwaymen into Buell in early March to prey upon the gold-seeking travelers into the new mining camps at Jarbridge, Nevada. Mm -hmm. Several of the members of the the gang are said to be imported from Salt Lake by Phelps. Phelps has been known as the high priest of the Intermountain Yegmen, Mm -hmm. skillfully evading lawmen. That was the last thing I could find. Yeah, <laughs> the the sheriff in Twin Falls sent out a flyer with his picture from the from his Utah from his Utah prison uh, mudshot, and there was actually a couple people arrested in um, one in Gilead, Washington, and another one in was it Harrisonburg, Oregon, yeah. up by Hood River.
0: Uh huh.
1: So they were both arrested and uh, they were eventually let go, but. That was it. The high priest of the intermountain Yegman <laughs> just faded into obscurity. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's got to be something out there. I,
1: I, I, I found one little news article. Where I, I don't, and and the name Charlie Charlie Phelps isn't that uncommon. Mm-hmm. I found I found a, a guy up in northern Idaho. I think it was somewhere around uh, up between up by Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. was was crushed by a. a, a Elevator at a like a like a feed store uh, in 1910, but I think it's another Charlie Phelps. Oh, oh this you know, it's so much that, that would have that would have been a fitting end to Charlie get smashed by an elevator doing some <laughs> mundane job. But, <laughs> right, but I don't think it was Charlie. Yeah, yeah. Or Charlie. Yeah. Well, we'll so. have to
0: do an update if if any of us uh, come across that whatever happened to him if he crossed the border if he went up to canada or went south to mexico or east and changed his name i uh, i just i have to know i hate that mystery
1: oh i've got okay i've still got a case i've still got an outstanding case like that oh really yeah <laughs> if you if you go on to us gov and you can then people can go into us gov and you can look at all the different responsibilities the marshal service has mm. judicial security fugitive apprehension prisoner operations seizing assets the witness security program witness protection program that's us huh. you can see all that stuff but if you click there on the main page there's a picture of the united states and you can click on the individual districts yeah and you can see who's the most wanted wanted uh, individuals for each each district said Montana is a district in itself. Idaho is a district by itself. State of Washington has two districts, east and west. California has four. Just they basically reflect uh, congressional districts. I have still got David Berger. He uh, and he's another interesting one. He had started a militia up and up and up around Kalispell, Montana, and he went to prison for doing that because they infiltrated the sheriff's office and they were, had a list of names and they were going to go around and they were going to shoot and kill local officials and uh he got caught with that they buried caches of weapons everywhere all over northwest montana and he was captured tried and he went off to prison for seven years uh, he came back and uh he was on supervisor release which is like parole mm-hmm. in the federal government and uh, he went on a wild chase so if you look up what david berger there's a video on He'd actually been on some of these uh, crime shows. There's an actual video, dash cam videos, of him being chased up in the hills in Montana, and that was on my birthday in 2013, <laughs> June, of two th- June 14th, of 2013. <laughs> and so that's how I spent my that's how I spent my birthday up up in the woods looking for him. He disappeared and never has resurfaced.
0: Well, we'll keep an eye out for him. We'll definitely <laughs> post that video. <laughs>
1: yeah I know yeah, he was taking pot shots he actually one of the deputy sheriffs When well, they they got in a gun battle on top of the mountain <laughs> he's shooting at each other and then then he hightailed it off the mountain somewhere well, I don't, we don't know where he went to I think the wolves got him oh man <laughs> the wolves or grizzlies or something like that that's that would be my bet
0: yeah
1: because <laughs> he was too he was too mouthy of a person to, to, to not say anything by now that's <laughs> He always had to shoot his mouth out.
0: Thank you so much for you've you've shared so much today. I feel like listeners kind of get a, a better idea of what a marshal's job was like. Is there anything else that you'd like the public to know about what a, a deputy U.S. marshal, what a U.S. marshal does, and the importance of that position within our our government agencies?
1: I, I think when the government agency the marshal fills, and it's it was, it was founded under the first Judiciary Act of 1789, it fills a gap. It's the marshals were were formed for every district because they wanted to have the marshal job was filled by individuals from that district. So it's a way to have a local person representing the federal government. Mm. So you have a local face and it's still that way. Yeah. You know, your government's not some uh, some nebulous thing. Just just out there in Washington, D.C. land back east. I can't say it's hard for me to say back east, now since I'm living in back. I'm living back east. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or, I, I call that the north now, the northeast. Right. Yeah. Because I'm in the southeast. The Marshall Service was a way back then to have local people running the federal government. You know, operating the federal government. Put it that way. And even though we're there's orders that come from Washington D.C., you also have people from that local area that are actually making the decisions on the ground and they know who the, who the people are and the, uh, the local people are in that area. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's really important. That's a, that's a real important function that was been codified into law mm-hmm. from the beginning of time it, for the United States that we're still, even though we have a, f- a federal government, the federal government is actually run to, by local people. Mm-hmm. And operated by local people, I should say.
0: Well, it's it's been great speaking to you. Thank you so much, Randy, and thank you for your career.
1: Well, I enjoyed it. It's fun. Thank you for your career. I enjoy. I, I mean, this history thing—that that would be a good second job, as also as uh, sitting there uh, working at working at a historical society or something like that. Oh, absolutely. I. Oh, it sounds like fun to me. I love it. Obviously, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a good thing i've and i've met a lot of nice people because of that to doing this stuff you can give me you can give people my email address if they if they if they want anybody to do any research on Marshall stuff i've had people write me letters over the years hey my grand i heard my granddad was a us marshal in montana uh-huh. you know and this was his name and stuff like that i'm more than happy to do research for people too oh, that's it's just crazy. it's it's interesting to me so
0: and and how can people reach out to you? What's what's your email address?
1: It's R A, Martinez, one four at hotmail dot com.
0: R A Martinez one four at hotmail dot com. All right. Well, I hope I hope listeners, you know, they have they have some
1: questions for you and, and then, shoot me uh, an email. I, I had my uh, the biographies online, and then the Marshall Service IT guys took them off. <laughs> They took a lot of stuff up, not just just not just Montana's, but every every other district. I am putting it on Facebook, U.S. Marshals Service Association. People can look on that website too. It's uh it's usmsa. dot com. As far as deputies, right now, you know it's 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 still a small agency. It's less than four thousand operational deputy U.S. Marshals. Huh. There's over fourteen thousand FBI agents. So it's a little more exclusive club than the. Than the FBI, yeah, <laughs> yeah just a little there. That's how much how smaller the agency is. But you're still covering the U.S. all our territories from Guam to the Virgin Islands. Oh, oh my gosh! <laughs> you know, and then you're doing factoring in things like like I did the internet. Like I in that one thing I did an international extradition. My stellar extradition was going to Holland. <laughs> Us avoiding. Uh, Pot cafes—you see all the all the smoke coming out—and you're walking along a canal, and you're like you're dodging you're dodging pot cafes with all the with all the smoke coming out. Because <laughs> nice place, I'd recommend going uh, traveling to Holland anytime. Great pastries, good beer, cold beer. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> all right,
0: Randy. Well, we like to end our show with a little tagline. If I were to say, "Do your own time." How would you respond to that? Do your own number. Hey, you got it. Nice.
1: That's right. Nice
0: talking to you. Nice talking to you, too. Okay.
1: Bye-bye.
0: All right. Take care. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.